In the name of the one God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So today I want to speak about living like followers of Jesus. You see, the title Christian does not have the best connotation in our contemporary society. And while it may be true that some of that comes from living in an anti-biblical context, many people in the church who profess to be Christians fail to live biblically consistent lives that reflect what it means to follow Jesus as noted in Holy Scripture. And while many excuses abound among Christians attempting to justify this inconsistency, the church was birthed in a society where Christians were at the margins and later experienced great persecution. Somehow, this vulnerable group, the Church of Jesus Christ, grew in ways that surpassed the growth and progress of so-called Christian societies. When looking at our contemporary context and comparing it with the past, I remember speaking with a friend and theologian, Dr. Jason White, regarding what I was witnessing within our church culture. He made an enlightening comment that directly relates to what is happening. He explained that in the West, particularly in our U.S. culture, people in churches have made the message of salvation the totality of the gospel when it is only a part not the whole. You see, far too often I hear people summarize the gospel, noting that Jesus died for people's sins so that they can go to heaven. That's it. End of story. In other words, they're saying that salvation has become about a Christian escape from this world and not about the world itself, which is, by the way, our eternal home. It's become about leaving this body, which we profess on a weekly basis that we will have at the resurrection. You see, the bifurcation of soul and body, this age and the age to come, heaven and earth, has encouraged people to profess to follow Jesus, but to attempt to divorce their behavior in this age from the results of the age to come. Now, if I've shared this experience before, please indulge me once more. I remember walking into a friend's classroom when I was teaching, and there was a discussion regarding various events of the church, and particularly its history in the early 20th century. And I remember that students began critiquing this one individual's behavior, and one of the students became very upset and began to note the embrace of cancel culture among his classmates. He argued that everyone should overlook this man's actions, no matter how horrible they might have been, because God saved people's souls through this man's work. He raised the question asking, isn't that what is most important? The salvation of one's eternal soul? Now, like I said, this was a friend's class, not mine. But... For those who know me well, you know I could not pass up this opportune time for a teaching moment. 
And so I piped in and said, hey, can I ask a quick question? And another one of my students who was also in this class just said, uh-oh. And I asked this student, do you believe in the resurrection? He says, well, I said, do you believe in the resurrection? Like, I, I need to know this before we proceed. And he goes, well, I, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. I said, great. Now, in accordance with, you know, the writings of Holy Scripture, the creeds of the church and the church tradition, do you believe that because Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, since he died and rose again, that we who die in him will also rise again? And after a bit of dialogue, he finally arrived at the conclusion that he believed in the resurrection. And at that point, I explained that belief in the resurrection demands care regarding how you treat other people's bodies as well as your own. You see, even after his resurrection, Christ bore the wounds of his crucifixion. If our resurrected bodies are anything like his, why do so many people have this romanticized belief that the resurrected bodies of believers will reflect some picturesque presentation of perfection? I remember being at the gym with a friend of mine a few years back, and he goes, well, you know, he saw this guy. He was like, yeah, I, I, I like how he looks. I think that'll be my resurrection body. And I said, nah, buddy, you got to start working on that thing now. You see, what you do in this life matters. St. Paul makes that clear in his writing to the church at Colossae. You see, the book of Colossians receives significant attention regarding correct doctrine, especially regarding the person of Christ. Many people in the church today who believe in the moral and historical reliability of the Bible do not struggle with embracing orthodox theological positions. Today's epistle reading addresses the issue with which many of these people in the church contend, and that is orthopraxy, engagement in biblically orthodox practices. Somehow, various portions of the church have come to think that correct belief excuses or compensates for mistreating others. And this simply isn't true. The book of Colossians, being such a brief epistle, is replete with the language of life and death. This language highlights life with and without Christ. St. Paul's use of this language reaches its peak in chapter 3, where he tells his readers, as those who have been raised with Christ, how they are to live. You see, for those who say they follow Christ, it's not just about what you believe, but it's about how you live with that belief. So to provide some context, I'll back up to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1, where the word of God declares, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
If you backed up a little bit more, the end of Colossians 2 explains that because you have died with Christ, you do not need to live as if you are still alive in the world. You don't have to live as if you are under the power of the world. Paul declares a reality that many in the church fail to acknowledge. You do not need to live as if you were under the world's power. And in light of this reality, you have a responsibility. In this age, you need to start living into the fullness of the age to come. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. In other words, in light of what was just said in the previous four verses, you do this. So what do you need to put away? You rid yourselves of sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And while some may say, well, you know, you haven't had any issues with these, you must understand that these things are all related to the world's power. And when you were not in Christ, you were subject to those powers. For this reason, Paul explains that in these you too once walked when you were living in them. And if you say that you have never dealt with any of those issues, Paul, in good fashion, he hits everybody because he's an equal opportunity offender. He explains that even those who have not engaged in such worldly sins still have things of which they must rid themselves. Beginning in verse 8, he says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. But sadly, having grown up in the church and served for over a decade in church and parachurch ministry, I have become keenly aware that this later vice list that Paul says believers must put away consists of those sins that many in the church embrace and excuse. Oh, well, they're just that way. Well, I've always been like this. You just have to put up with what I'm doing. How often do we hear that among the people of God? But consider this for just a moment. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Therefore, oh, that's just how I am, does not fit. <laughs> because you are a new creation in Christ Jesus. So how many of you have engaged in these sins? How many of you have witnessed these sins among those you call your brothers and sisters in Christ, but have failed to confront those individuals regarding the sins in which they engage? Consider for a moment how many people have been pained or pushed away from the community of faith by such sins and the failure of others to confront the sins that they excuse in the body of Christ. While those individuals who have departed the faith or have never come are responsible for their actions and their rejection of Christ, how much did you help or hinder them in that relationship? You were called to live 
into the reality to which you have been raised in Christ Jesus. So how does that reality look? Well, Paul tells you in verse 11, he takes some time to discuss some of the most divisive frameworks of his day and explains that here, in the reality to which God has called those who profess to follow him, that all the divisions people try to make among the people of God are illegitimate. I want you to notice something. The differences still exist. The ethnic differences among the people of God still exist. The differences in religious heritage still exist. The various socio-cultural differences all still exist. There is no need to ignore them as they are part of the beauty of the diversity that God himself has placed within the world. Now, while the world, no, let's be clear. While this nation, which is a tiny sector of this world, is about as divided as anyone can imagine, here, among the people of God, no worldly behavior should exist. No racism, no classism, no fill in the blank with whatever divisive ism rooted in hatred you want to add. None of that should exist among the people of God. And let me explain something. Despite the excuses that are given by people, they are not natural, they are not normal, and they are not godly. And therefore, the people of God should put them all away, for they are subject to God's wrath. You must recognize that there is no such thing as neutral ground in the kingdom of God. Having put away all these sins and vices, you are to put on something else. Notice how Paul describes you as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And this, if this is you, then you are biblically obligated to put on compassionate hearts to put on kindness, to put on humility, to put on meekness and patience. You must bear with one another. You must forgive each other. And notice the last portion of verse 13 where it says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. This is not an option in the Christian life. I have hit on this in the past, but I want to remind you again that just as the scriptures demand that followers of Jesus forgive others, they also require that followers of Jesus not sin against others. Additionally, the word of God insists that followers of Jesus not passively stand by and allow wrongs to happen to others. So how often does this occur? How often do you personally sin or passively allow people to sin against those you say you consider a brother or sister in Christ? Even as we confess in the general confession, we pray about those things that we have done and those things that we have left undone. These things should not be among the people of God. For you are called to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, let me explain. This does not mean that you will agree with everyone on everything. And I guarantee you this. If you agree with somebody on everything, one of you is lying. It's unrealistic. There will be disagreements. 
Trust me, I can be holy and sanctified and be all pure living as a hermit in a cave. You put me with somebody else and there will be conflict. But you must ask yourself if you will handle those disagreements as those who follow Christ. Because he demands that you abandon the immaturity that has invaded the church and instead walk into the maturity that God has called you to. This is what happens when you put on love. You won't have the anger, the wrath, the malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth when you do that. Why? Because you have put them away and you have put on love. After putting on all these things that we are supposed to and getting rid of all the things that we're supposed to let go of, you are to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. As members of one body, the body of Christ, you were called to peace. Now, let me explain. This is not your internal, individualistic or personal peace that you have that the world talks about. This is the peace to which you were called in the one body. In other words, when the world is acting crazy like it is now, when people, especially those in the body of Christ, are being attacked, maligned, and slandered, the one place they should be able to go and find peace is among the people of God in the body of Christ Jesus. But sadly... Those in the church have demonstrated that the peace of Christ is not the prevailing peace among the people of God. Just as the peace of Rome, fake peace might I add, was spread through domination and bloodshed, the worldly peace that people even in the church have come to embrace is that of power, its use, misuse, and abuse. So please do not let the hostility of the political left, the political right, or even that of the political center rule in your hearts. Only let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And when this takes place, all can be thankful. So how do you get there? You must let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And this means doing more than simply saying or hearing the words of Scripture. You must let the word dwell in you. You see, as Anglicans, the prayers we pray and the songs we sing are to always accord with the words of or be congruent with the words of Scripture. Therefore, when you pray the daily office in the morning or evening during prayer time, you should recognize that your prayers should impact your beliefs and your beliefs should influence your behavior. So tell me, how can you pray that you were led in the way of justice and truth, but ignore justice issues in our society? How can you become angry when we pray for the president or for the governor or for the mayor, but that person isn't the person that you wanted to have in office? You can't. And this is why it is vital that whatever you do in word or deed, you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This does not mean that you attempt to wield the name of Jesus as a weapon for your social, political, or economic gain. 
It does mean you do and say that which reflects the character of Christ. Anything else is taking the name of the Lord your God in vain. So may God's people consistently live as those who follow Jesus so that those both inside and outside the church may see what we do and glorify God in heaven. Amen.